You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church Podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's Word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. This time of the year is uh, exciting, not because of March Madness, but because we're turning our eyes uh, to Easter, the very heart of of our faith as we celebrate uh, Jesus's death and his resurrection. And, um, and so uh, we're in this sermon series on prayer uh, because it's going to lead us up uh, to, uh, to Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and, and on the cross uh, as we come to Easter Sunday, looking at Jesus's prayer on the cross and how his prayer on the cross gives us hope uh, for all of eternity. Um, but on our way there, we're looking at Jesus's instruction to us to pray in Matthew 6, and then we're going to look at the content for which Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, starting next week and for the next uh, three weeks after that, and asking that the Lord would, would teach us how to pray, to give us a heart to pray, to give us a hunger to pray, uh, as well as uh, to provoke us to, to actually spend time in prayer, because the best teacher of prayer is prayer itself. Uh, as much as I pray that these sermons are helpful in shaping your understanding of prayer and, and maybe providing some encouragement and exhortation towards spending time in prayer, uh, honestly, the best, uh, the best teacher of prayer is for you to spend time with him in prayer, for you to fumble over your words in prayer, for you to forget your spot in prayer, for you to, uh, to cry out to God in prayer, for you to bear your heart before him. And, uh, and so uh, I pray that you're encouraged in that, in that regard. And today we're going to continue by looking at the latter half of Jesus's teaching on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, verses 11 through 15. Uh, I asked Mason to read from 1 Peter as a complement to this text. We've read through the, the, the Lord's Prayer uh, the last uh, few weeks uh, twice, and, and I, I love the instruction uh, that Peter gives in 1 Peter because you can hear the echoes of the Lord's Prayer and um, in, in how Jesus and how Peter encourages the believers that are scattered uh, throughout uh, that region because of persecution to, to cast their cares before the Lord because he cares for us, to, to humble ourselves under his mighty hand, to, um, to, to really give ourselves fully to him in prayer, which is a reflection of what Jesus would have taught Peter uh, in the Lord's Prayer regarding how to pray. And so uh, <clears throat> for the last uh, three weeks, um, we were, the last two weeks, we were looking at the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Um, in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 10, they were very Godward focused. The focus was upon God as Father, that we can come to Him, that we address God as Father in prayer. Now, of course, you could pray to Jesus. You can pray. You can say, Holy Spirit, help me right now. Empower me to be bold and share the gospel or help me say no to this temptation that's before me. But we have this, this, this uh, encouragement and this confidence that we can come to God because God is Father. For God to be Father, it reminds us that we're adopted through the gospel, right? That God doesn't have any grandchildren. So if your parents were followers of Jesus, you don't get grandchilded in. Uh, he only has children who call upon him as father, who put their faith and their trust in him. And so to be able to come to him in prayer is this reminder that he has saved us by his grace and he's adopted us into his family. We have access to God, the God of the universe, the God who made all things, the God who spoke and things happen. 
We get to come to him, big and small, and bring our requests to him. And we don't come cowering in fear, wondering if he'll accept us. We come in confidence and in childlike faith, knowing that he is a gracious father. And as much as he is a father, he is a father in heaven who's great and who's glorious. And we begin our prayer in adoration because just as we sang, he is worthy. And, and in some ways, what we do in prayer is what, uh, what that song does. Uh, he is worthy. That Andrew Peterson, who wrote that song, uh, it, it's provoking us as God's people to ask ourselves, is he worthy? He is. When you come to him in prayer, well, why, why do you think you can come to God in prayer? What, what kind of God do you come to? We, we tell him that he is holy. We tell him that he is righteous. We tell him that uh, the kingdom of God is what our life is centered on. We tell him that his will is what we desire, not our will, um, and that this is the foundation um, of prayer. And so these first uh, two weeks, we learn these lessons on prayer, that we begin in adoration, uh, that we start with God, it doesn't mean that you can't, in a need, bring your need to God. You don't have to, you know, if, you, if you're in a, in a moment of need, it doesn't mean that you have to say, okay, God, you're great and glorious. Now, what I really need is, is for you to help me in this moment. You can bring your needs to God, but as the fundamental principle and pattern of your life, we're, we're, we're not looking at prayer as a slot machine and just putting it in and bringing it down and seeing what God will give us. We're recognizing that prayer is a relationship. It's, it's about our relationship with God. And so we begin in adoration because we are coming to the creator and the savior who has enabled us to have access to him. And then in our prayers, we center our life on his kingdom. We say it's your kingdom, God, that we desire. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's, it's not about us and, and our little kingdom and, and our little slice of the pie and saying we want it our way and we want things done in our time. We're, we're submitting ourselves uh, centering our life on his kingdom and submitting ourselves to God's will. We're saying, God, your will be done, not my will. And what that means is we're saying, God, help me to obey your word because he's revealed his will to us in his word. You remember last week, the will of God? I hope you guys walked in the will of God this week that you might be saved. First, first, uh, Second Peter 3 tells us it's God's will that none perish but all come to repentance and faith in Christ. First Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, including but not limited to your sexual purity. And then First Thessalonians 5, 18, to kind of hit you right between the eyes. This is God's will for your life. You ready? That you might be thankful, that you might have a thankful heart recognizing God as the good giver of all good things and all gifts. And, and we see God's will and we're saying, God, help me to submit myself to your will. Help me to obey your word as well as God, help me to trust you when life comes at me. When, when your will, your sovereign will that I have no control over how all these things work out and life is happening to me, hard things happen to me, hard circumstances or things I don't understand, help me to trust you in the midst of it. That's what we're saying. We submit ourselves to God's will as well as God help those around me come to see how good you are and help them to gladly submit themselves to your will that they might know and follow you. So this is the, the foundational lessons we talked about as it relates to prayer. But today we're going to shift and look at the final three. Some people see four petitions uh, in, in the verses 11 through, through 15. And now we shift from kind of this Godward focus, his holy name, his kingdom, his will to our needs to our sins, to our temptations. And it's kind of following this uh, recognition of God as, as Father and being, comp being confident and comforted by who He is that we bring our requests to Him. And these requests remind us of the, the normal everyday life that we live. 
Uh, they're, they're really petitions of dependence. And so we've looked at kind of three ideas from the Lord's Prayer. We've looked at adoration, we've looked at submission, and we've looked at dependence, that our prayer life would be marked by these three things. Um, and, and today we come to our dependence upon God. And the first thing I want us to see is in verse 11, is to, to bring your needs to God. Jesus says to pray in this way, to pray, give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. Now, first thing we have to recognize as we look at this prayer and its request is in some ways it, it doesn't compute fully with the life that we live today, right? Like we, we pray before our food and we thank God for our food, uh, but, but we live in a world where we go to the grocery store and we get what we need and we stock up for a few days at a time or a few weeks at a time. Um, and and you, you really don't think about your need for food. Uh, and in and, and, and our house, I, <clears throat> I'm the, the dishwasher. Emily's a far better cook than I am. Um, and so usually when I try to cook, I make things worse. And so um, I, I sometimes don't even think about how the meal is going to get prepared. I, I don't even have to think about it. My kids definitely don't think about it. They just come to the table and they're like, I want, I want, I want. I don't do that. I'm much, you know, I'm much more... Uh, you know, domesticated in my approach. You know, I understand uh, how, how to approach that situation. Um, my children don't, and they just, bring their, they just bring their needs, demanding their daily bread, right? Uh, with no concern or understanding of how we got that daily bread, how much that daily bread cost, how much they just wasted by throwing it on the floor. Uh, none of those things. Um, and so, but also in an agrarian society, like it would have been in Jesus's day, one bad crop, one storm and your supply of food would be gone. Your, your supply of food could be uh, at, at risk. There was no lip service before the meal. Uh, and then you go to your fridge and your freezer being well stocked. There was like, Lord, I'm getting up today and I don't know where dinner's coming from because I still have to go out to the market and get it because there, there isn't any fridge for me to go to when I wake up. Like it's a it's a different sense. And so what this is emphasizing is a few things. One, necessities over luxuries. The implication is sustenance for today. Uh, it it kind of takes us back, if you will, to what the Lord did when Israel was wandering in the wilderness and God provided for them. You might remember this story, but if you don't, uh, if you're not familiar with it, when, when Israel came out of Egypt, <clears throat> before they came into the promised land, they didn't trust God that he was going to deliver them in the promised land. So God had them wander uh, in the wilderness of that region for 40 years. But in God's grace and his kindness, he provided for them. Uh, he provided manna, which means what is it? Um, and, uh, and, and sometimes when I go back, I look at my college days, and I look at some of the food that I ate, like it was definitely manna. It's like, what is this? Like, right? But the Lord provided it, and it was what I needed. Um, <clears throat> and so God provided them food, but here was the thing. They had to go out day by day to gather the food. And what did God say? You go out and you gather enough for today, and there'll be more tomorrow. What do you think some of those Israelites did? They're just like you and me. They said, two for one special. I'm going to get a little extra so I don't have to go out tomorrow. And I'm going to keep it. And what, what, what happened was that that extra they got rotted and stank in their house because it was an expression of them failing to trust God and failing to depend on God. 
And then I could totally relate. Israel is like, God, the bread's great. We appreciate it, but we need some meat, right? Like the meal isn't complete without the meat. Um, and what did, what did God do? God provided them meat just as he provided them bread. But they had to gather it day by day and to trust him. And then on the Sabbath, before the Sabbath, they gathered enough for two days that they wouldn't have to go out on the Sabbath. They could rest and, and worship and reflect on the Lord and have enough food. So God provided for all of their needs. But they had to trust him. And here we see the same thing. When we pray, give us our day, our daily bread, we're praying for our necessities, not our luxuries. There's a sense of immediate over, uh, over the future. Uh, in fact, the, the wording for daily is translated, give us the food for the current day or for the following day. But it also recognizes uh, that there's a lot that goes into getting your daily bread, right? Uh, we, we have to work. In this context, there had to be plants that were planted and then watered and then harvested. And then, um, then they had to take the grain and they had to do the thing where, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen this with, um, with Gideon or uh, when he was, they would get down, uh, they would get down in the, uh, in the grain press and they would throw it up in the air and the chaff would blow away and the grain would fall down because it was heavier than the chaff and Gideon got down there because he was scared and he didn't want any of the uh, Midianites to see him. And so um, we, we see this work that had to go into gathering the food and, and there was need for good weather and there was need for, uh, for the family to be involved in it. And there was peace that was needed around you for the, for the crops to be planted. All of these things went in to giving us our daily bread. And oftentimes we don't think about any of these things until we're, we're pressed, our backs pressed up against the wall. In fact, literally in our context today, about 25% of the grain uh, of the wheat that's produced in the, in the world comes from Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and I don't know if it will lead to any shortages or not, or how those shortages will be made up, but literally there are fields that aren't being planted uh, with, with wheat because there's a war going on and those farmers aren't planting in their field. They're fighting in a war. You, you, you literally see the implications of what goes into getting your daily bread. And how God in his sovereignty and in his grace is providing all of these things. Um, one of the reformers, Martin Luther, he kind of pushed back some of the early church fathers. They, they did a little Jesus juke with this, and they thought, surely Jesus isn't talking just about physical bread. It has to be spiritual bread, right? Like Jesus would be talking about spiritual bread. Give us our spiritual bread. And we obviously know Jesus talked about being the bread of life and the gospel of John, but I think sometimes we can get in our own way. And, and, and I think what Jesus is teaching in here is literally we're dependent on God for our daily needs. And Luther said, this isn't talking about spiritual bread. It's a symbol for everything that's necessary for the preservation of life, like food, a healthy body, good weather, a house, a home, wife, children, husband, good government, and peace. All of these things go into our daily need for the Lord. And so we pray, give us this day our daily bread out of dependence for God for our necessities. And there's two things that I think this teaches us uh, to, to live by, as well as how it will in turn shape our prayers. One, we live with a daily awareness of our need for God. This is teaching us that we are dependent on God for all of our daily needs. Yes, you might have bought the groceries at the store with your own money, but God has given you a job. God has given you the ability to, to buy those groceries. He's given you the opportunity to go and do those things. He's given you the, the circumstances and the, and the city that we live in in order to be able to do those things. Sometimes, God literally gifts you when somebody shows up at your house 
and drops off food for you. And you're like, I didn't cook this, but here it is. God literally has provided this through the hands and the feet of somebody else in the body of Christ. We, we should have this daily awareness of our need for God. And then a daily awareness, secondly, that God is the giver of every good gift. In Proverbs chapter 30, <clears throat> we see this, this kind of uh, almost a, really a prayer or request um, from the, the author of, of Proverbs, I believe. <clears throat> it's the words of Augur. Uh, the son of Jacob, uh, makes this pronouncement in verse 7. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Don't deny them to me before I die. Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food that I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and still profaning the name of my God. It's this sense of our, our awareness of our need for God. God, I'm trusting in you to give me what I need. Give me neither riches nor poverty, lest I forget you in my abundance or in my need. I profane your name and I harden my heart against you. And then secondly, in the words of James, a recognition, as it says in James 1, 17 through 18, every good and perfect gift is from above, from our heavenly father who's coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by his word that we should be a kind of first fruits, it says, of his creatures. He's given us salvation. He's brought us forth, as it talks about, by the word of truth. That's the gospel, as well as he's the giver of every good gift. And Paul says we ought to receive everything in prayer and thanksgiving and making it holy and set apart to God. That's living with a daily awareness that God is the giver of every good gift. Which is it for you? Are you tempted in your abundance to forget God? Or are you tempted in your need to question God? I think we can all be tempted in one of these two directions. Sometimes we can feel it in different areas of our life. Maybe you're not lacking financially and you can forget God when it comes to some of those areas of your life and just kind of operate distant from God. But maybe in some area, other relational area of your need, you feel lacking. And you question God's goodness because of a lack that you have in your life. How aware are you of your daily need for God? How much are you receiving everything that comes your way? Whether it be a, a good conversation with a friend, a meal, time with, um, time with your family, uh, time enjoying peace and quiet, time of worship, time in the word. How much of the, the stuff of your life do you recognize as a gift from God? Or how much of those things do we take for granted? The Lord's Prayer is teaching us to, um, to, to ask God, to bring our needs to God with this recognition that we're dependent on Him. But underneath all of them is this concern. I heard this from um, one of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, as he was talking on this passage. This petition teaches us this precious, this precious truth. It teaches us if you put it in first person, if you will, that I am of God's personal concern. To, to be able to pray, give us this day our daily bread, is to pray knowing that we are of God's personal concern. You don't have to question, does God care? Peter told you, cast your cares on the Lord, for he cares. And, and we get to come to him knowing 
that as we bring our requests, that we are of God's personal concern. He's not burdened by our requests. Have you ever, you ever had a request that you needed to ask someone, but you're like, ah, I don't want to burden them. You know, I've got this need, but I, I know what they've got going on. I don't want to burden them. So we, we complicate our life by, you know, trying to figure out another way around it when maybe the direct thing would be just to ask and trust. If they can't, they'll say no. If they can, they'll say yes. But God's never like that. It's never like, I don't know, you know, I don't want to put this weight on God, you know, like he's already got a lot going on, the whole world thing. Like, I don't want to put all this on him. God says, I care about you. You are my personal concern. We can bring our needs to God. But secondly, verse 12 tells us that we are to run to God for forgiveness and ask for grace to forgive others. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In my own life, I have found that it is easy for me to major on other people's sin and to minor on my sin. It's easy and and, and more clear for me to see other people's sin than it is for me to see and acknowledge my own sin. I say see and acknowledge because sometimes I see it, I just don't want to acknowledge it. And the Lord's Prayer flips that and reminds us that we start with our own sin. We recognize as we talk about dependence, just as we are dependent on God for our daily needs, we are also dependent on God for forgiveness. And then being forgiven by God, we also are dependent on God to be able to extend forgiveness to others. I love that it includes this. It's just the assumption that just as much as you need to forgive, you need forgiveness of your sins before God, that you probably need to forgive some others and some others might need to forgive you. The Bible consistently paints a clear picture for us of real life, not a, not a fairy tale world in which there isn't any sin and there aren't any problems, but it tells you that, that not only God has a good design, but it tells us why things are broken and messed up in the way that they are. And that we are called upon to, to bring our sin to God and seek his forgiveness as well as it just even assumes that we would ask God for forgiveness. Notice how it says it in verse 12. As we also forgive our debtors, as we forgive those who have sinned against us, it's as we do this. We'll talk a bit in verses 14 and 15, just how serious Uh, the issue of forgiveness and unforgiveness is as it relates to our spiritual health. But here the assumption is that just as we need God's forgiveness, we also are forgiving others, that that's taking place in the Christian life. And so we, we ought to be concerning ourselves and cultivating within ourselves a sensitivity to our own sin. The, the image or picture that I had pressed upon my mind early on in, in just kind of my early discipleship, and I heard a mentor pray it this way. He would, he would talk about how a baby's hand, you know, as you, as you get older, your hands get more calloused, and, and you know, you can maybe withstand uh, getting it a little bit closer. If you think of a flame of a candle, we have a wood-burning stove in, in our house, and, um, you know, you, I know that I can put my hand in just enough to move the log around if I need to, or if it looks really hot, I'll use the little you know iron thingies to, to move it around. It's a very technical term for what those are called. Um, but if, a, if, if my six-month-old were just to get close, the, the, the sensitivity of their hand to the fire would cause them to pull back. 
Whereas as we sometimes grow older and the callousness of our hands can, can uh, sustain a little bit more uh, closeness to the fire, a little bit longer in the fire. Well, we ought to pray, God, make us like a, an infant's hand is to, to, the, to the flame of a candle. That's sensitive to our sin. That we would, we would see our sin and we would, we would repent. We would be quick to, uh, to, to confess our sin and repent of our sin before God. And not only to, if we cultivate a sensitivity to our own sin, will we keep a short account with God, but if we cultivate a, <clears throat> a sensitivity to our own sin, we'll also keep short accounts with others. And I can't tell you in, in, in my life as a Christian how much the Lord has, has often used this very point to challenge me and, and often my unwillingness to seek reconciliation first and quickly to seek forgiveness when I know that I've sinned against someone. But, but when I am aware of my dependence on God and submitted to him and his will, there is a quickness and a recognition that I sinned. I messed up. I shouldn't have said that. And sometimes, like what Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Like sometimes it has to do that. I've been in the middle of a conversation trying to argue my point and recognize I'm in sin and I need to say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. You're right. I'm wrong. I shouldn't have said that. To, to be able to, to recognize our, our own need for, for forgiveness, our own sin, and both confessing it to God and confessing it to others. This is foundational to the Christian life. You become a Christian when you recognize your sin and you turn from it. That's called repentance and you put your trust in Jesus. That's how salvation begins, by repentance and faith. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of the God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and trust in Jesus. That's how the Christian life starts. That's a point in time when you put your trust in him. But then the Christian life is lived out in that because when we trust in Christ, we are forgiven of all our sin, but the desires and temptations to sin are not gone. Amen? They don't go away. It's not like it changes. And so we need a life that's marked by a process of continual repentance and continual faith that trusts God for our forgiveness and ask God for help to, to walk in obedience to him, to, to, to not only receive his forgiveness, but to extend his forgiveness to others. So we, we ask God, forgive us of our sin and help us to forgive. We run to him for forgiveness and ask for grace to forgive. But here's what's missing, I think, in a lot of our confession. And I want to encourage us in this. A lot of times we confess our sin and then we move on. I want to encourage you, when you confess your sin, make it a habit to remind yourself of some assurance of God's pardon. Remind yourself of some assurance of God's pardon. Here's some verses that you can write down to go to. After, after confessing sin to the Lord, perhaps in, in your time with the Lord in the morning or maybe in the evening, as you, or even just when you recognize sin, whenever it is, and you confess your sin, God, I know I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. Please, Lord, forgive me. Help me not to walk in my own flesh, my own desires, my own pride, my, my own selfishness. God, put to death lust in me. Put to death pride in me. God, put to death anger in me. And when we ask him for forgiveness, follow it up with this. And Lord, I know you said that surely... The servant who is Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
And though, God, I know I've gone astray just like a sheep and I've done it before. God, I know that I come to you because the iniquity of my, my sin was laid on Jesus. Thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. God, I, I confess, Lord, I, I, I have not had control over my tongue. Lord, I know uh, that you are merciful and gracious. God, you are slow to anger when I am quick to anger. What good news that is, that you are abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Thank you for forgiving me, Lord. God, I know that I have been at, in conflict with, with my spouse or with my friend. And, and Lord, forgive me for the attitude and the, the words that I said that hurt them. And, and Lord, I know that with you, I'm not in conflict anymore because I have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's by him and through him that by faith I have grace. And this grace I stand in and it gives me hope. God, I, I find myself here again. I said I wasn't going to do this. And yet I can't seem to break free from, from these sinful desires or these sinful thoughts. God, I know that you won't always chide. You won't always keep your anger forever. You don't deal with us according to our sin or repay me according to my iniquities. That when I ask you for forgiveness, God, you receive forgiveness. And as far you give forgiveness and as far as the east is from the west, so far do you remove my transgression from me. You see what happens when we confess our sin? And then we plead the promise of God, the assurance of our pardon. Listen, some of us pray for forgiveness and then we act and we get up and we act like we have to prove that we're worthy of forgiveness. What we need to do is we need to receive God's forgiveness. And allow the motivation of his free grace to enable us. To turn from sin and obey. The difference is, yes, we, we want to confess our sin and then get up and go and sin no more in these ways, right? But what we're doing is we're recognizing that we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We don't have to impress God for, to earn his forgiveness. He's given his forgiveness freely. Don't trample on it by thinking you need to make yourself worthy in his sight. Receive it. And in the free, marvelous, glorious grace of God, go and live. And watch how grace motivates obedience. More than fear and more than performance could ever motivate our obedience. Forgive us, Lord, and help us to forgive others. Then sixth, or the third point from uh, these verses in verse 13, Jesus prays, <clears throat> deliver us, Lord. Or excuse me, do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So we recognize that the spiritual battle is bigger than ourselves. This, some people see this as two petitions. Do not bring us into, into temptation. That's a hard word to say. When you into temptation, you say that like fast. I always get tripped up. Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I think it's kind of two sides of the same coin is, is how I uh, read it. It's likely a negative and a positive aspect of one petition. And the point is our spiritual enemy is real. Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The point here is our spiritual enemy, the devil and his snares and the fiery darts uh, that elsewhere the scriptures talk about. One commentator, John Stott, he says the proper sense of this petition is do not allow us to be led into temptation that overwhelms us, but rescue us from the evil one. It's a prayer for God's grace and his spirit to help us 
to turn from our sinful desires and to walk in obedience to God. It, it says uh, in, uh, in Titus chapter 2, verses uh, 11 through 15, it says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us. I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. To say no to unrighteousness and godliness and to say yes to righteousness and godliness and, and upright living as we await for the blessed hope, the return of our glorious God and Savior, that the grace of God teaches us to say no to sin and to say yes to godliness and to righteousness. And so what this prayer is saying is, is a recognition that the spiritual battle is bigger than us. And God, we need your help to keep us from temptation and to allow us not to be overwhelmed by temptation. God, give me the wisdom to order my life to not put myself in the way of temptation and then whenever I find myself in the way of temptation, God, by your grace and by your power, strengthen me to say no to sin. To say no to my own sinful desires and the temptation to be drawn away. This is what Paul prayed in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, which we know as the whole armor of God, the, the armor of God. You could pray this armor of God uh, and put this armor on, so to speak, every day. He said, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, just like it says in, in Matthew 6, that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, cosmic powers over the present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul's saying there's a real spiritual battle that's going on out there. I don't know how to spell it all out for you, but I felt it. I've sensed it when I've walked through it, when there's a, a very real spiritual um, battle that's going on. And, and Paul is saying there in Ephesians 6, it's not against people. People aren't the problem. There's spiritual realities that are at play. And he says, against all these things, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Here's how you stand firm. Fasten on the belt of truth. Live by the truth of God's word. Allow it to, uh, to, to be what holds you together. Put on the, <clears throat> the breastplate of righteousness, the being made right with God through faith in Christ, as well as a desire to, to reflect a life of righteousness in the way that you live, that the, uh, the most essential part of you would be guarded by your righteousness in Christ as well as righteous living. That we would put on and have our feet marked with the readiness uh, to share the gospel. That we would stand firm in the gospel and that we would move towards people with the gospel. That we would, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, believing the promises of God. Being made right, right by faith in Him, that it would, it would guard us and keep us. That, that we would be able to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, the, the accusations that come against you because of your sin. It's faith in Christ and what he's accomplished for us that protects us and extinguishes those flaming darts. And the, the helmet of salvation that we would know and think rightly that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. That our eternity is secure and that our mind would be set on the grace that he has given us in Christ. And that at all times we would have <clears throat> the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That would be our weapon that we fight with, that we would, we would argue back against the temptations that arise within us, as well as with the spiritual battle that we engage with the truth and the promises of God's word. Pleading back to God the promises he's made so that at all times we might pray in the spirit with prayer and supplication, keeping alert with perseverance, making supplications for all the saints and for me that words may be given, Paul says, that I might open my mouth to proclaim the mystery of the gospel 
for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You see, what happens when we, when we ask God for deliverance, when we ask God to, uh, to help us in our spiritual lives, uh, John Onwen Chekwa in his book on prayer says it this way. He says, we strengthen our hands by surrendering our hearts. That's what we do when we pray on the armor of God. That's what we do when we, when we ask God to deliver us and to help us in temptation. We're saying to God, God, I need you. I'm surrendering my heart to you, asking that you might strengthen me to follow you. You see, sometimes we, we think it's the other way around. We think that we can strengthen ourselves by proving ourselves. We, we think that we'll be stronger when, when, when we, we go and, and we tackle whatever we face in our own strength. But real strength comes from surrender. Real strength comes from, from giving ourselves fully in dependence to God. So here we have in the Lord's Prayer these lessons about prayer that we begin with adoration, that we center our life on the kingdom of God, that we submit to God's will, that we bring our needs to God, that we ask God for forgiveness and grace to forgive others, and that we recognize the spiritual battle is bigger than us, and so we submit ourselves fully to Him. But the Lord's Prayer here and the teaching of the Lord's Prayer doesn't stop at this point. The, the Lord's Prayer technically ends in verse 13. But verses 14 through 15 make a, an additional point that, I'll, that we'll close with. <clears throat> it says, For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Jesus closes with, I think, what, what I would call a grave danger to your prayer life. Really, it's a danger to your spiritual health. And that danger isn't the infrequency of your prayer, nor is it the lack of eloquence of your prayer. It's not even a matter of the length of your prayers. It's fundamentally the condition of our heart as we pray. And Jesus says the grave danger to your prayer life and your spiritual health is unforgiveness. You see, what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying that your forgiveness of others earns your forgiveness by God. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that forgiving others proves your forgiveness. He's saying that unforgiveness reveals a lack of true repentance in the first place. Unforgiveness reveals a lack of receiving the forgiveness of God. So God forgives the repentant and then the forgiven extend forgiveness to others. Now, we recognize there are some circumstances that I think this is important to say. There there are some times in which you've been sinned against, perhaps in situations of abuse, where the posture of forgiveness does not negate the consequences uh, or the conditions that need to be put in place for safety and protection. So uh, let's be clear in understanding that this isn't a, uh, a gloss over, should not be used in any way to advocate for or uh, to counsel someone to stay in a condition of abuse because they need to forgive someone. However, consistently throughout the Bible, Jesus is clear that all kinds of people are going to sin against you. And that if you allow bitterness to take root in your heart, it will eat you alive. I think this is why he points this out. It's because an inability to forgive others. And now I just think mostly for the most part, 
Most of the forgiveness we need to extend are over personality clashes. They're over preferences. They're over the, the style of how we do something, the way in which something is done. Um, you know, this week, uh, <clears throat> I'm driving along, doing well on State Street, and bam, somebody runs into the back of me. You know, inside, I'm like, you've interrupted my day and messed up my car. It didn't mess up my car very much. It messed up their car more than mine. But um, then all these lights came on in my car on the dashboard. So I'm like, maybe it did mess it up more than I think. But you, you have those moments where things happen to you and, and, and you just want to be mad. And I, I looked back, you know, I gave that glance in the rearview mirror like, really? Um, and then I get out and it's, you know, a junior uh, college student and she felt terrible. And I was like, it's okay. You know, it's no big deal. Like, we'll get it all worked out, you know? Um, sometimes life happens to you and, 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 and not just in the funny accidents or unfortunate accidents, but, the, but the, when people sin against you and the everyday flow of your life, a lot of times... Here's the way we handle it. <clears throat> Give it time and it'll get better. Just gloss over it and it'll get better. I don't want to, it's not, it's, a, it's too much of a mess to extend forgiveness. I don't want to enter into that. That's too much of a problem. But when we allow unforgiveness to take root in our hearts, it will hinder our prayer to God and it will hinder our spiritual health. And so Jesus ends on this point because it's foundational to our ability to receive grace from God. Because if we harden our heart in forgiving others, we're unable to receive the grace that God desires to forgive us. And then it also challenges us. And I, I, somebody else has said this, but I've used it many times and have had to question my own heart. When somebody has sinned against me, and, and I'm just frustrated. Maybe it's just momentarily I'm frustrated and, and I don't want to extend forgiveness to them. I don't want to reconcile with them. I'm just frustrated by what they've done or the whole situation is frustrating to me. <clears throat> I ask myself this question. Was Christ's death on the cross sufficient for me to forgive them? Was Jesus' death on the cross enough for me to be able to extend forgiveness to them. For the most part, every time I've asked that question, it's done exactly what you would think it would do to my heart. It's melted the hardness of my heart and recognized that if Christ's death on the cross is sufficient for my forgiveness, then it's also sufficient for me to extend forgiveness to them. Unforgiveness is a danger to our prayer life. Because it, it hinders us from receiving God's grace. It hinders us from being truly dependent on God. It hinders us from truly submitting to God. And it hinders us from giving God the proper adoration that he's due for his grace and his mercy. Because it inverts all of those things and doesn't receive them as a gift from God. So are you broken and contrite? Is the posture of your heart humbled before God? Do you know the forgiveness that God gives through faith in Jesus? If those things are true for you as a follower of Christ, the encouragement that the Lord's Prayer gives us is keep on. Keep on coming to Him. Keep on growing in prayer. Keep on coming and don't just cower before Him, but come boldly, come confidently. But even if you don't feel like you can come confidently, even if you don't Feel bold when you come to God. Just come to Him and know that He delights to hear His children pray. 
He delights for his children to come to him. He taught us to pray in this way. Not so that we would just repeat words to him, but that we would know the desire that he has is for, we, for us to praise him for who he is, for us to submit to his kingdom and his will, and for us to be dependent on him for everything, for our daily needs, for our sin, for, for our very uh, deliverance from temptation. We can come to him and bring our request to him because he cares. We can come to God. And if you're wondering if you should come to him in prayer, The question is, have you received this forgiveness? And if you have, then come. And in turn, the other question is, if you haven't, if if I'm what I'm talking about, the forgiveness of God's grace that comes through God's grace because Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. What's keeping you from trusting in Jesus? What's what's keeping you from receiving the forgiveness of your sins? What's keeping you from from experiencing the relationship with God where you call him father? And come to him as a child, as a son, as a daughter. 